0: Due to the graphic nature of this podcast, listener discretion is advised.
1: This podcast may contain, but is not limited to, strong language, sexual content, violence, and death.
0: This podcast may not be suitable for listeners under 18. Hi there, I'm Christina. I'm Crystal. Welcome Welcome to to Crime Night. Night. Tonight's episode will be about William George Hirons, also known as the Lipstick Killer. The more I research this case, the more confusing things got. On June 5th, 1945, a body of a woman was found in a Kenmore Avenue apartment in the uptown neighborhood of Chicago. The
1: woman was found in her bed with multiple stab wounds and a skirt wrapped around her head. Half of her body was covered with sheets and a lack of blood indicated that her body had been washed after her death. Her wounds had also been taped up.
0: The woman had dark hair in her hand from a struggle with the attacker. The apartment was ransacked, yet there was no sign of any valuables missing.
1: The police presumed that the woman had surprised her attacker, although there was no motive for the crime, nor was there any fingerprints found at
0: the crime scene. The woman was a 43-year-old woman by the name of Josephine Ross. She was a homemaker with two teenage daughters, and she was also engaged at the time of her death.
1: Her body had been found by one of her daughters upon their arrival home that
0: day. Police questioned Josephine's fiance as well as her ex-husband and some other former boyfriends she had. Nothing came of this and they all had alibis at the time of her death.
1: The only other suspect that police had was a man with a dark complexion who was reported to be loitering near the building the day that josephine was murdered this man was actually never located
0: the body of a second woman was found on december 10th 1945 just months after world war ii ended in september the woman was discovered in the pine grove avenue apartment in the lakewood neighborhood of chicago by a cleaning lady after she heard loud music and seen the apartment door ajar
1: half of the woman's body was in the bathtub with a knife still in her throat. She had been shot twice in the head and the knife had been plunged through her throat, um, clear through to the other side.
0: Like with Josephine, her body had been washed after her death and had a towel wrapped around her head instead of a skirt.
1: Once again, police believe that she had surprised her attacker um, and no valuables were taken.
0: This time, a message was left at the scene, written on the wall in red lipstick belonging to the victim was, for heaven's sake, catch me before I kill more. I cannot control myself. Police
1: also found a bloody smudge fingerprint in the door jam of the bathroom door in the apartment.
0: The woman was identified as Frances Brown, a 32 year old stenographer who had recently returned from serving in the woman's Navy.
1: A witness named George Weinberg heard gunshots around 4 a.m. The night clerk of the lobby, John Derrick, also reported a man acting nervously leaving the elevators prior to exiting the building. This man was described as being 35 to 40 years old and weighing about 140 pounds.
0: The last victim of the lipstick killer was Suzanne Degnett, a bubbly six-year-old girl who lived with her parents, Jim and Helen, as well as her 10-year-old sister, Betty. Suzanne was a very active girl who rarely sat still.
1: The Dugnan family had recently transferred to Chicago for Jim's work. He was an administrator on the wartime meat regulation board for the Office of Price Administration, or OPA, and Helen was a stay-at-home mom.
0: On January 7, 1946, Helen started the day by waking up her daughters, who were returning to Sacred Heart Academy, after their holiday break. After waking Betty up, Helen went to Suzanne's room to find that her daughter was nowhere in sight. The family frantically searched for Suzanne before contacting the police when they could not find her.
1: Suzanne's bedroom was located on the first floor of the Degnan's upscale apartment which was located on North Kenmore Avenue in the Edgewater neighborhood of Chicago.
0: Police discovered a ladder outside Suzanne's bedroom window as well as a crumpled up ransom note in the bedroom that read, Get $20,000 ready and wait for word. Do not notify FBI or police. Bills in fives and tens. And on the back of the note, it said, Burn for her safety.
1: In the back of the Dignan's apartment, police also found a blonde hair. As well as a wire near the apartment, a handkerchief was found, which police believe could have been used to gag the girl
0: during the kidnapping. Police questioned the Degnan's neighbors. None of them witnessed anything suspicious. An anonymous tip was called in that evening to prompt the police to search the sewers near the apartment. Before we
1: go any further, I would just like to give a warning that graphic acts dealing with a child will be coming up. If you feel uncomfortable listening to this, please feel free to skip to six minutes and 45 seconds.
0: Unlike the previous murders, six-year-old Suzanne was dismembered. Her body parts were scattered throughout the sewer system.
1: Despite being credited to the lipstick killer, Suzanne's murder was different from the previous two murders, as she was the only child victim, as well as the only victim to be removed from her home.
0: Suzanne was buried four days later without her arms, as police were unable to locate them. Her arms were found a month later.
1: An autopsy found that Suzanne had been strangled before being dismembered. The coroner also noted that whoever had dismembered Suzanne must have known what they were doing as the cuts were both clean and precise.
0: During the investigation, a laundry tub located in the basement of a nearby apartment close to where Suzanne's head was found was indicated to be where the dismemberment took place. The press dubbed the room with the laundry tub in it as the murder room.
1: Hundreds of people were questioned with approximately 170 of them polygraphed during this investigation.
0: Police originally thought the kidnapper and murder of Suzanne could have been a meatpacker as there was a national-wide meatpacker's strike happening at that time. Um, An employee of the OPA recently had to have an armed guard due to a threat against his children because of this strike
1: a man had reportedly called the stagnant demanding a ransom multiple times although he never gave any more information and always immediately hung up this uh could have just been somebody that was harassing the family after seeing what was in the newspapers
0: yeah things like that happen all the time hector verberg was arrested on the suspicion of suzanne's murder Hector was a 65-year-old immigrant from Belgium who worked as a janitor in the building that Suzanne's family lived in. He also had access to the area where Suzanne was dismembered.
1: Despite Hector not fitting the police profile for Suzanne's killer, they still announced his arrest uh, with confidence.
0: While in police custody, Hector was questioned and beaten for 48 hours. The lawyer from the janitor's union got Hector out of jail using habeas corpus.
1: After being released, Hector spent 10 days in the hospital recovering from injuries sustained during the interrogation, including a separated
0: shoulder. It was later determined that Hector would have not been able to write the ransom note as he could not write English well enough.
1: Hector ended up suing the Chicago police and was awarded $15,000, which today would be about um, a little over $200,000. And his wife was also awarded $5,000, which would be around $67,000 today, um, as the police also pressured her to implicate her husband in Suzanne's
0: murder. Sydney Sherman was also suspected of Suzanne's murder. Police connected Sydney to the handkerchief found near the Degnan's apartment as it had S. Sherman marked on it. During this time, it was common in the military to mark your items with your name as the soldiers' laundry would be all washed together, and marking your laundry items would make it easier to differentiate each other's laundry.
1: After searching military records, Police found that Sydney lived in the Hyde Park YMCA.
0: Police also believe that Sydney could have been connected to the blonde hair that was found in the Degnan's apartment.
1: After finding Sydney's apartment vacant, police discovered that he had quit his job and never picked up his last paycheck, which made Sydney look very guilty.
0: Four days after a national manhunt for Sidney began, he was located in Toledo, Ohio. After bringing Sidney in for questioning, police discovered that he had actually left to elope with his girlfriend.
1: He also passed a polygraph test and was cleared of all suspicion. Police found that the handkerchief they found that had S. Sherman actually did not belong to Sidney and instead belonged to a Seymour Sherman, who was an airman living in New York. Seymour had also been out of town during the murders, eliminating him as a suspect.
0: Police began to question the local teenagers, looking to see if they had any information that could help them with the murders of Suzanne.
1: One boy named Theodore Campbell told police that Vincent Costello kidnapped and murdered Suzanne.
0: Vincent, who had a prior armed robbery conviction, was brought in for questioning. Both Vincent and Theodore were given polygraph tests and failed.
1: Neither of them could give any details of the murder, and it was discovered that they had planned to lie about committing the crime in order to get the ransom money, although I'm not sure how they thought that plan was supposed to work. <laughs> Did it... I don't think they really thought that went through.
0: <laughs> no, they didn't. <laughs> Despite the newspapers already declaring the case solved, Vincent was dropped as a suspect.
1: On June 26th of 1946, Richard Russell Thomas confessed to murdering Suzanne. Richard, who was a nurse at the time, was actually serving in an Arizona prison when he confessed.
0: Richard was convicted of molesting one of his daughters as he had also previous convictions of spousal abuse, burglary, and attempted extortion.
1: At the time of Suzanne's murder, he had been living in Chicago and his handwriting was actually similar to that of the handwriting in the ransom note.
0: Richard later recanted his confession and was dropped as a suspect. It was suspected that Richard falsely confessed in order to be moved from the prison in Arizona to the prison in Chicago.
1: The final suspect and convicted lipstick killer is a man by the name of William George Hirons.
0: William was born in November of 1928 in Evanston, Illinois, to George and Margaret Hirons. He grew up in the suburbs of Lincolnwood, just outside of Chicago with his parents and his younger brother.
1: William's childhood was fraught with poverty as he was growing up during the Great Depression in a largely corrupt area.
0: With the economy struggling, George and Margaret lost their flower business.
1: After losing their business George took on many odd jobs while Margaret worked as a seamstress in order to make ends meet.
0: William was described as a loner and began working when he was 12 years old taking on a summer job delivering orders for a food store and he later worked for delivering at a liquor store and also in the steel mills.
1: During William's teen years his parents would often argue about finances and it didn't help that his father George would spend his paychecks at the local bar
0: to avoid having to listen to his parents argue he would roam the neighborhood eventually turning to stealing in order to release his tension theft quickly became a hobby
1: William was arrested for the first time at age 13 after searching his home in a nearby storage shed police found money weapons clothing Uh, cameras, jewelry, and basically anything else that he had stolen in there as rather than selling them, he would keep the items for himself.
0: While in police custody, William admitted to 11 burglaries and was sent to Gibolt School for Wayward Boys, which was also once housing to Charles Manson.
1: Located in Terre Haute, Indiana, approximately 200 miles away from his home, uh, Gilbalt School was founded by the Knights of Columbus and run by Catholic priests.
0: William lived in the school for about one year, starting in the summer of 1942.
1: After his release from Gilbalt School, he quickly went back to his old habits and was once again arrested for burglary. This time, he was sentenced to St. Beatty Academy for three years.
0: Located in Peru, Illinois, St. Beattie Academy was about 100 miles from Lincolnwood. The academy was ran by Benedictine monks.
1: Today, St. Beattie Academy is a private four-year college prep and boarding school.
0: While living in St. Beattie, William was noted as exceptional student, excelling in math and science. The teacher at St. Beattie, encouraged William to apply at the University of Chicago.
1: After being accepted, William began classes in the fall of 1945 at the age of 16. Uh, William had majored in electrical engineering at his time, University of Chicago.
0: While living at the university, he worked part-time and as he still did not have enough, he resorted back to stealing in order to pay for his schooling.
1: On June 26th, 1946, 17-year-old William was caught breaking into a building in the Rogers Park neighborhood in
0: Chicago. After being chased down by the police, he pulled a loaded gun on an officer.
1: There are conflicting reports as to whether the gun had jammed when William pulled the trigger or if he even pulled the trigger at
0: all. A scuffle ensued and William was eventually knocked unconscious while an off-duty officer hit him on the head with three flowerpots.
1: William was then taken to Bridewell Hospital, which was attached to the Cook County Jail. In the hospital, he was questioned for six days, with the questions becoming more and more intense.
0: During questioning, William was barely given any food or water, he was beaten and fingerprinted.
1: He was also slipping in and out of consciousness due to exhaustion, pain, and drugs that he had been given.
0: Psychiatrists administered William sodium penthanol, commonly known as tooth serum without a warrant or consent from the boy's parents and as he was a minor, he could not consent on his own.
1: Sodium pentatol is a barbiturate that could be used to calm anxiety. It's a uh, sedative that could cause drowsiness, eliminate pain, and in high doses or high enough doses um, could actually knock someone out entirely.
0: Sodium pentatol could make it difficult to perform some tasks, such as walking in a straight line or even lying, which is why it is often used as a truth serum. The effects of the sodium pentanol is similar to those of alcohol
1: well under the influence of the sodium pentatol, William claimed to have a alternate personality named George Merman, who is responsible for all the robberies, as well as Suzanne's murder. A psychologist told police that William made up this dual personality um, to separate his negative self from his normal self, similar to that of a child um, blaming an imaginary friend when they get into trouble. However, police suspected that William was doing this to set up an
0: insanity plea. Once no longer on the truth serum, William said that he was unable to recall much of the interrogation and disputed what he said while under the influence.
1: On the fifth day of his hospital stay, William was given a spinal tap without anesthesia before being taken to police headquarters for a polygraph test. He actually was unable to take the polygraph test due to the amount of pain he was in, so they had to reschedule that when he did finally take the polygraph it did come back inconclusive
0: while in the hospital he was unable to see his parents for four days and was refused the ability to see his lawyer for the duration of his questioning
1: william was transferred to the cook county jail on july 2nd where he was put in the infirmary to recover
0: after his arrest police stated that william's fingerprints and handwriting matched the ransom note found in the deckman's home The police also matched the fingerprint from Francis Brown's apartment to William's.
1: After a little over a month in custody, William and his parents signed a full confession to the murders of Josephine, Francis, and Suzanne on August 7th of 1946.
0: On September 5th, 1946, William was spared the death penalty and sentenced to three consecutive lifetime sentences with the option for parole as part of a plea bargain given. William was never granted parole and all of his appeals he requested were denied.
1: After he was sentenced, William claimed that he only confessed in order to save himself from the death sentence. He continued to claim his innocence until his death on March 5th of 2012 due to complications from diabetes. He was still serving his sentence at the time of his death.
0: There are many people who believe that William was wrongfully convicted as there are suspicious circumstances surrounding the evidence used to convict him and the press had been putting pressure on the police to solve Suzanne's murder at the time of the investigation.
1: The state's attorney, William Truly, did nothing to discourage these doubts when in a news conference in June of 1946, he both stated that there was no doubt William was guilty and also stated that there was not enough evidence to even indict
0: William. The first major issue came when William's first confession was given under the influence of drugs after he had been beaten for several days.
1: As William was underage, he could not consent to anything the police did and was not allowed to see his parents or his lawyer until days after.
0: Williams' confessions also shown many inconsistencies with the three murders. The press even printed Williams' confession highlighting the facts that some of the answers were very vague. His confession also contained much of what had been released through the press and what information he got from the police rather than unknown information.
1: It has been pointed out that many of the inconsistencies in his confessions are indicators of a false confession.
0: The fingerprints found at the apartment belonging to Francis Brown had brought questions and planted evidence that the fingerprint was originally listed as a smudge during the investigation.
1: The fingerprint used as evidence in court has been said to have looked like a rolled print, similar to that used booking inmates.
0: The handwriting had also been a point of contention with most experts believing that it did not match Williams own handwriting.
1: During the investigation the handwriting expert for the Chicago police as well as the head of the Chicago crime detection laboratory Charles Wilson found no connection between William and both the ransom note as well as the lipstick message.
0: However the third handwriting expert Herbert J. Walter stated that Williams' attempt to disguise his handwriting, but it still fit the handwriting at the two crime scenes. This statement came months after Herbert had previously declared that there was not enough similarities and too many differences to match Williams' handwriting to the evidence.
1: Probably the most conflicting evidence was the ransom note.
0: The note was handled improperly and would likely be deemed inadmissible in a case if it had went to trial due to a broken chain of custody, as well as the amount of people who had handled it, including the newspaper reporters who were able to handle the note during the investigation.
1: There were also many inconsistencies regarding the note coming from the authorities themselves.
0: The Chicago Crime Detection Lab were the first to examine the note after it was collected from the crime scene. They were unable to find any usable fingerprints.
1: Okay, the note was taken to the FBI on January 8th.
0: The FBI later stated that they could tell that the note had been handled considerably by the time that they had received it.
1: The FBI used iodine fuming, which is similar to today's polysinoacrylate or superglue fuming method used to raise fingerprints.
0: Two prints were found on the front of the note and immediately photographed. The prints would fade quickly with the older fuming methods. The photograph of the prints were then examined by the Chicago Police Department fingerprint expert Sergeant Thomas Laffey, who declared the fingerprints were too incomplete.
1: In June, Sergeant Laffey checked the incomplete prints with everyone who had been arrested since January, including William who had been arrested for a burglary in May. No matches were found.
0: Three days after William's arrest, Sergeant Laffey suddenly announced that William's prints were a match to both prints, with one being a nine-point match. For reference, the FBI standard was 12 points, and Sergeant Laffey's personal standard was seven or eight points.
1: The Chicago police also announced that Sergeant Laffey found a palm print with a 10-point match to William on the back of the note, despite being unable to find any prints in the earlier examination, which is why they ended up having to send the note to the FBI in the first place. The FBI also never mentioned any palm prints nor any prints being on the back of the note
0: at all. During William's sentencing hearing, Sergeant Laffey testified to a 10-point fingerprint on the back of the note that had not been previously mentioned. He also testified that the palm print was a 10-point comparison to the FBI's standards rather than the original 10-point mentioned earlier.
1: One of the fingerprints found by the FBI mentioned during the hearing was actually never linked to William under
0: oath despite all of the issues and evidence william's lawyer never raised any issues as they already believed that he was guilty
1: william's original confession that was taken at the hospital in the six days after his arrest was never released to the press during the investigation and disappeared after he was sentenced along with most of the other evidence that was collected do you have any thoughts on this case
0: i have lots of thoughts on this case though. one of them i i don't honestly think that suzanne's murder tied in with the other two they had total different mo's everything was different about it was a child and the yeah. other two were adults and
1: yeah i agree she definitely she was not killed in the same manner at all the other two were likely connected just because they were very similar yeah. But with Suzanne she she was the only one taken outside of the house. She was the only child. Her death manner of death was very different from the rest of them. They had a ransom note with the kidnapping. I don't think her death really had anything to do with I don't think so either the other two, I think deaths.
0: There's two two killers out there that were for sure. Involved in these two total different scenarios. Yes.
1: And one of them may
0: or may not have been William. So tell us what your guys' thoughts are on this. If you think that William did all three of the murders, he committed one of them, any of them, just kind of let us know what your thoughts are.
1: Or do you think that the pressure from the newspapers pushed the police to just convict somebody quickly um, to get uh, somebody in prison for Suzanne's
0: death. I really think that that was a big part of it. I think the press played a big part in them having to convict somebody. Just and how because... big of
1: a mess the Yeah, because they were
0: making themselves was. look really bad.
1: This was also a time where Al Capone had recently ended his reign in Chicago, and mm-hmm. there was still a lot of corruption. At mm-hmm. the time, it was... A time where they're they're coming out of the Great Depression and
0: World, World War II that
1: it was just not a great time in general.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you for listening to Crime Night.
1: You can find our sources on our website listed in the podcast
0: description. You can also find us on Facebook and YouTube under Crime Night Podcast.
1: Please join us every other Wednesday at 6 p.m central.